Welcome to the Truth for Doubt podcast, where we like to talk about theology, apologetics, and try to have a little fun along the way. Join us as we navigate through life from a Christian worldview. Welcome back to the Truth for Doubt podcast. Welcome. I would say it's good to see you again, Dr. Ethan Hunley, but we've been around each other pretty much all day. Yeah, yeah. I don't have anything else to say. I, I, so I was trying to think of a way to work in Reverend Michael, but I can't. I, I, I can't. It doesn't I can't, fit as I can't much think as Dr. Ethan Hunley. It doesn't. I have a lot of Mexican food in my stomach right now, <laughs> and it's a wonderful thing, but it, it's making me pretty dang sleepy. I was just thinking that, like... I feel so bloated right now, in 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 the in, in the most satisfying way. <laughs> yeah. Who doesn't want to feel bloated yeah. from Mexican food? It sounds so, so comfortable. Shout out to Mikasita, Mikasita, and uh, good old Humboldt, Tennessee. Humboldt, Tennessee. That's right, man. Well, it's it's weird because I'm I'm starting to tick off time on the calendar by our podcast. And it's it's oh, yeah. starting to make time feel like it's going by way too fast because oh because like, like the weeks just yeah. like melt off because I was like we just did this podcast not that long ago mm-hmm. uh, or like last week and then I realized it was two weeks ago and now it's now yeah right it's crazy <laughs> it's, it's super crazy yeah and you have this big trip to Vermont coming up yeah yeah so people listening you can be praying for uh, me and my wife Kayla because we're going up to. Uh, Vermont, Boston, and Maine to uh, go to a church planting uh, summit, I guess. And then we're also going to be talking with a bunch of church planters in all these different states because Kayla and I are going to be church planters up there in roughly a, a year, year and a half time, somewhere around mm-hmm. there. So yeah, be praying for that and be looking for, looking for, I guess, updates and things like that. Yeah. I'm on the Instagram now, which is right. like something that I, I swore I would never do, but doing this ministry, I kind of have to. Which yeah. has been a blessing. You got to keep up with the times. I mean, really, you got to stay yeah, relevant. I'm like I'm an old man. In I, my soul. I am too. Yeah. I am too. I even. I mean, I'm on Facebook not that often, but now yeah. Facebook's like out of date. Yeah, it's when like did the that new, happen? I don't know. I, I mentioned it to somebody the other day, uh-huh. and they were like, "Oh, you're still on Facebook?" And I was like, "Yeah, I get." I mean, I didn't know that was a, like it's like Zanga or something now. I don't even know what Zanga is. I missed the whole. Zanga you don't remember era. Zanga? No. Oh man. So it was like right around the time of like MySpace. Okay. But it was just like kind of a different version of that. Yeah. Yeah. I'm not going to lie. I I preferred MySpace over Facebook because I remember going on all these different websites to get these like codes that you can put on like your MySpace profile thing to and like make customize it. Look different. it? Yeah, yeah, man. I had <laughs> At one point I had like this dragon head thing that was animated for like my back background and stuff because ah. I, I was super cool but then i realized that that was as cool as it sounds and changed <laughs> it to like a soccer team or something like like liverpool or something I was that's like, funny maybe that's my friends on my soccer team would like better than this dragon thing <laughs> they probably already thought it was weird anyway uh, it was. that's but, funny yeah i never did the myspace thing you didn't Facebook was the first social media site I ever got onto. Oh gosh, you didn't like rank your friends or anything like that. Mm-mm. <laughs> yeah, so I uh, I was on MySpace, not uh-huh. not I, I didn't have a profile, but I would get on and like look at other people's profiles and stuff. Yeah, that's creepy. It was kind that's of scary. looking back, I guess it kind of was. <laughs> People do that on Facebook all the time. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, online stalk. Oh, speaking of, when I first started my Instagram, I had. I don't remember what I had to do. I had to do something because I had one, but I didn't make it myself. 
What? So, yeah. Somebody a long time ago, because these were like old pictures that were on there. What? Like, I, what is it? Like catfish? Like catfished me or whatever. No uh, way. Or, yeah. So like you found pictures of yourself? Yeah. How? I had an account. Somebody like, I think they took pictures from my MySpace uh-huh. and, and started an Instagram account for me. But I have no clue who this was at all. Kayla found it a few years ago. And what? Oh my yeah. gosh. So, and I don't know. I mean, I, I never wanted a stalker, but I guess that's kind of what flattering. If, what if you, what if you had an identical twin and you were separated at birth uh-huh. and just by chance, their name was also Michael Badger. I don't, I don't know how I would feel about that. I guess I would have to like fight them because there can only be one. To the death. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Actually, so that reminds me. Yeah. Um, I, I have so many questions. You've never told me that before. About what? About your, this Instagram. Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah. It was, uh, yeah, again, I have no idea who it was. Is it still up? I, I mean, because. I think so. Cause I if think you didn't I, create it. Oh, that's You true. can't delete it. Well, like, I guess right? it's, maybe it's still there. Because my, um, the Instagram account that I have right now is through truth for doubt not right. not like michael badger huh so it could be there how yeah. weird i haven't looked in a while well so so what i mentioned earlier reminded me have you heard the and I, i've seen it online in several different places there's this story oh and there's a documentary about it where uh there are these three triplets and none of them knew that they were triplets do you, do you know what i'm talking about no okay all right so Again, I haven't seen the documentary, so I only know pieces of the story yeah. from what I've seen online. But apparently, there were triplets. They were each one of them separated at birth, and two of them happened to just by chance happened to go to the same college. And it like wasn't a big college; it was a smaller college. But just by chance, two of them happened to go to the same college. They randomly like met. And they're identical. That would yeah. creep me out yeah. so much. So oh, then, gosh. yeah, imagine how crazy that would be. Yeah. But then imagine, and I, I don't know how the third one got involved or how they met him or caught up. But anyways, a third one comes into the picture. So there's you not only meet another you, but then you meet a second another you. That is how crazy. Insane. Would how that did be? he come back into the picture? Did he I, go to the college too? Or that's, like, that's what I don't remember. So, oh, um, well now I'm, I gotta know. Yeah. That's, so just look up Netflix. I don't know. I'll find it. I, I brought this story with very little information. <laughs> <laughs> Those are the best stories. You just make it up as you go. But it was interesting. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I definitely want to see it. That's crazy. Well, hey, for uh, people who are more into the apologetic stuff than, uh, than I guess, the lighthearted stuff, fast forward, like, oh, man, we're already seven minutes in. How did that happen? It's, we're just having fast fun, Fast forward, man. like, another 12-ish minutes, maybe, uh, and then we're going to be talking, we're going to be talking about this week, uh, postmodernism, because we, we kind of touched on it last podcast, uh, but we were kind of talking about it within the context of the book, uh, The Coddling of the American Mind. And we want to kind of take time to kind of dissect a little bit about what postmodernism is and and the the entire worldview behind it and all that kind of stuff. And then how we as Christians can respond to the different kinds of uh, accusations, I guess, that come from those who are wrapped up in the postmodern worldview. So anyway, fast forward again, like maybe 12 minutes or something, maybe longer if we get on a little bit more of a tangent, but, <laughs> and then you'll, you'll get into more of the meatier stuff. But one of the things that we keep saying 
that we talk about on this podcast that we have yet to actually talk about. And we're, what, four podcasts in? four podcasts in, and this is on, like, our Patreon page and stuff that we talk about this stuff. But we always said we're going to talk about our favorite Lord of the Rings characters, and so we we listed we got we got our top three, top three, and and we're gonna go through them and talk about why there are particular favorite characters. So let's start with our with our least favorite. So I guess our Wait, third least favorite or third most favorite. Th- okay, yeah, third most favorite. That's okay. a better way to say. Okay, that. gotcha. Because I was about to say if it's least favorite, I have to change my character. Oh, got it, got it, got it. Well, like I said earlier, I'm really stupid, so you have to kind of interpret okay. what I say by yeah. knowing that. Do you want to go first? Um, or do you want me to go you first? You go first. Okay, all right. Oh, no. Okay, never mind. I thought I put the same character on you twice. <laughs> <laughs> I told you I'm really stupid. My third oh, favorite really character is this. My <laughs> second favorite character is the same one. <laughs> yeah, it's crazy. They were separated twins. And Okay, so I try to go a little bit outside the box with these characters. I, because, I, I tried to do that too. Yeah, because everybody would pick Aragorn or or Gandalf. Right, or, you got to go outside of the Fellowship. Yeah. I mean, you can't yeah, include anyone kinda, in the Fellowship. Yeah, because everybody's going to pick those guys. Yeah. So, okay, my first one is Bill the Pony. <laughs> that's a that's Bilbo's pony, right? No, Bill the pony was Sam's pony that, that got them Sam's all the pony. way to uh, the mines of Moria. That's right. Yeah, that's right. He was a good pony, and then they had to let him go. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And even Aragorn, Aragorn himself said that Bill the pony was a good pony, and that's <laughs> man. If you get a recommend or a, Bill an the pony, <laughs> yeah. Well, you yeah. you weren't lying. You really went. Deep characters I, here. I think he's an unsung hero of yeah. the Lord of the Rings universe. Yeah. So, all right. What's your What's yours? So, so third favorite. I'm gonna go with Faramir. I forgot who Faramir. So, was. so do you remember Boromir? Yes. Oh, oh, his brother. His brother. Right. Got it. So the, in, your... in the movie, the the long blonde hair. Okay. Yeah. So, in the movie, it kind of it, he has like this really weird side story part mm-hmm. and. And then his dad tries to kill him, and he's not dead, and it's just really... He got thrown onto the fire, right? Right. Was well, like being burned alive? Well, they uh, they laid him on the fire, because the dad's like, oh, my son has died, and yeah. he's trying to burn him, when they're like, dude, he's still alive, like, chill out. But in the books, all of that happens, but there's a lot more backstory to it. Oh. So, like, Frodo and Sam are, are still trying to get to Mordor, and they come to, like, this battle where Faramir and his men are fighting the orcs and, you know, the armies of Mordor. And Faramir and his men see the hobbits, and they think, like, they're like, oh, you, one, don't look like us. Two, don't look like the enemy that we're fighting. So they're like, what creatures of Mordor are you? Like, you know, they're, like, real, like, not trusting um, hobbits are terrifying looking. Right, so like, huge why would you feet. Trust them? Yeah, yeah. Um, chubby cheeks, all that. Right, and so, anyways, I guess long story short, he has the he's just, he's much wiser in the book. Oh, okay, like yeah. he's this kind of dark, brooding military leader, but he has the wisdom to not just kill them, but ask them these very pointed questions yeah. and really investigate. You get that, and a little bit in the movies, but not as much as it makes it sound like you're. In, in the books. Like, he's, again, he's my third favorite character. Right, like, right. he's in the books. Yeah, there's just a lot more to it. Yeah. Which is really cool. And then he's kind of, it's kind of tragic, too. Because he almost dies, and then his dad kind of goes crazy. 
Oh, and he could never live up to like his brothers, like the dad. Oh, like his brothers. He can't fill his brother's shoes. Right, like, right. Yeah. The dad wished that Boromir would have lived yeah. and Faramir would have died. Man. And after reading all the backstory of how awesome of a leader, military leader, right. wise guy, like, and then he gets none of the credit. You so. took this way more seriously than I took this. <laughs> you said pick your you favorite three. so much more about Lord of the Rings than I do. When you've read the books, it's... That's true. Uh, yeah, there's a I lot, have to like, admit, I've never read the books. I've and just we were talking about it earlier. Like, But I've... Okay, to be fair, I've watched all the extended versions the extended of the movie. The extended versions, so, yeah. yes. Give me a little bit Which of Which is credit. like an extra four hours. Yeah, it's a long time. Yeah. All right, so my, my second favorite character... Number uh, two. My number two is Tom Bombadil. <sighs> You jerk. Oh, did I steal yours? Yeah, you did. <laughs> was he your number two as no, well? No, he was my number one. Oh, he's your number one? He's my number one. Really? He's yeah. awesome. Yeah, well, we can just talk yeah about him he's for my a number second. one. Yeah. So he's the guy that shows up in the very beginning of Lord of the Rings, basically, when they're trying to get out of the... The Hobbit. Yeah. Oh, the Hobbit. Oh, that's right. Mm-hmm. Man. But yeah. Facts straight. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> I tell you so much more about this than you nerd. I am. <laughs> I'll own that. <laughs> but uh, but like he's awesome. Like I think I, I was reading that like Tolkien was saying that he's kind of like not he wasn't supposed to be like representative of God, but he was one of the most powerful people in the entire yeah. Lord of the Rings universe. Like he held the ring, didn't flinch, and just gave it right back to Frodo and all that kind of stuff. Yeah. He, Wait, he's in the Hobbit. He's in. He he is in the yeah the very first Lord of the Rings movie or the book because he gives the ring back to Frodo. Now I'm questioning everything. Uh, I'm questioning who's the everything. Nerd now I don't know if that's a win for me or a loss. You're for right. Me. It is. It's the first Ha-ha. Lord of the Rings book. Gotcha. I I stand corrected. Ha-ha. I apologize. All right. Well, I'll take the nerd crown back from you and put it on my head. <laughs> and don't tell my wife. <laughs> oh gosh. But anyway, he's an awesome character. You're right. It was the first one. Yeah. And that's that's why he's my number one. It's because he stands out from literally every other character. Right. There's not one other character that's similar. That's even even approaches him not the wizards or anyone yeah like or even uh <laughs> when you, oh my god when you say wizards i just break out to a smile I can't really help it. <laughs> wizards are your love language yeah, yeah i think so <laughs> still trying to figure it out um I, i'm blanking out the um i mean the main bad guy sauron is the main anyways so yeah tom bombadil stands out and honestly, he's probably just as powerful. I don't remember all the details because uh-huh. it's been a few years since I've read it. But he, he like walks through the forest and like controls nature around mm-hmm. him. But it, he's like a male mother nature. Uh, it's just so cool. Yeah. Yeah. yeah like absolutely. he's almost separated from the world. So, okay. So who's your second since that was your first? Well, you threw me off. Yeah, so give that. me a second because I, I, I forgot it. Well, here, I'll give you my first while you're thinking. Okay. My first place Lord of the Rings character is... Boromir. I know that you said to get outside of the fellowship, but Boromir is one of my favorite characters uh-huh. because not that he's like crazy heroic, even though I think he is, but I think he is the best representation of humanity inside of the Lord of the Rings universe because yeah. he was he was tempted by the ring. He tries to like steal the ring off of Frodo, but then he he gets redemption and he recognizes his faults and tries to turn from it and make Uh up for it and he ends up you know giving his life to save the hobbits and i was like man if i'm honest with myself that that would be me like that would be well maybe i don't know i probably wouldn't even taken those giant arrows to the chest right and like 15 of them baby yeah i would have been i I never would have left i never would have left my city honestly (laughs) to go on a on a stupid quest 
But uh, but yeah, and I think the reason why I picked him too is because I think the way that we often read any sort of novel is that we always read ourselves as the hero. Right. And we do the same thing with history too. Like when we were reading history, we always see ourselves as, I guess, like going back to the Protestant Reformation, like we always see ourselves as the Martin Luther, not the... Um, not the people who are persecuting Martin Luther or trying to right. kill him. Or even going back to like Nazi Germany, we always see ourselves as the people who would... The Diedrich keep, Bonhoeffers. Yeah, the Diedrich Bonhoeffers right. or the people who would who housed uh, Anne Frank and all those different right. kinds of things. But in reality, man, we are fallen Probably people. Probably much more closer to the people who are like, ah, don't kill us, we're cool with Nazism. Yeah, yeah. Or, you even know? The, yeah, or even the perpetrators themselves right. uh, because of our fallen natures. And if we weren't those things, it would only be because of the sovereignty of god and and yeah. him working inside of us and that's it yeah but uh, but that's why i like boromir so much is because oh, okay. i think he represents what i would be in that world that's if really i were good. to be one of the quote-unquote like heroes of the of yeah. the board of the rings universe that's really good so i'm bouncing around in my head for a number two because i really have several number twos i guess <laughs> i'm thinking about who is uh Oh gosh, I'm such a terrible Lord of the Rings fan because I'm forgetting names. <laughs> it's okay. I can edit this out. No one will know. Elrond. I like him a lot just because he he's been around for thousands and thousands of years. He was there at that at the very beginning when they fought Sauron the first time. Right. He knows kind of this the the weight of the situation mm-hmm. of him returning and then with the ring. It's I just I think he's really awesome. Yeah. But then another person I thought about Again, I cheated on my own rule because I'm going to pick someone from the Fellowship. Oh, okay. And I'm totally going to do what you just said, play myself into the role of the hero. But freaking Aragorn. You would be Aragorn? I didn't say I would be. like the manliest guy? I can see it. Like, that's who I want to be. Right, right, right. I mean, the guy, for one, is Strider, who Mm -hmm. is this, like, lone ranger who just goes and travels all throughout this world that has all these dangerous things in it and survives. Mm. Okay. He's pretty much a lone survivor. He comes back and he's like the most faithful of the fellowship. Right. Because even even when they're like, well, hopefully Sam and Frodo are alive. Who knows? You know, they could be dead because they split off after forever. He stays the course. Yeah. He's yeah. like, we have a mission we don't know if they're alive or dead or if they're still on the trek. We still have a purpose, and like we're going to do that. And yeah, he's just awesome. He's just really cool. And then he ends up being the king in the end. He remakes. <laughs> <getting> so excited. <laughs> it's so awesome. <laughs> he re, uh, reforges that sword, which was that first sword that cut off the hand of Sauron in the ring. I don't know if you remember that part. I do. Yeah. I do. Yeah. He wields that sword. I mean, pfft. He is deal. he is the coolest character. He is he is the coolest character yeah. on there. Uh, yeah. Again though, he's my number two. I think Tom Bombadil is number one. Gosh, we're such nerds. Woo! Yeah, yeah. You, I mean, I wish people could see how excited <laughs> you just got. Like your hands are in the air. He's so you cool. You are so pumped up about Aragorn. Man. I, I really want to go on a binge and watch all the extended versions. I again. do too. That's like a once a year thing that. Kayla won't admit this, but Kayla and I both do. Really? Uh, yeah, we watch well, Lord of the Rings like once a year. And let's then, do like, it Harry together. Yeah, let's do it, man. That'd be awesome. Yeah. That'd be fantastic. Just, we'll go to one of our houses. Yeah. Shut all the doors. Right. Turn off all the phones. Yeah. And yeah. whatever, nine, 11 Not hours it is. sleep for a full day. Yep. I am, I'm down with that. Let's do it. 
Well, hey, we finally did it. We finally talked about our Lord of the Rings characters. Finally. Yeah, it's been false advertisement on the Patreon page. And I'm sure... um, Well, no, I guess, actually, we haven't... We kind of semi-announced the Patreon page, but we didn't actually start it until, like, last week. So we'll, we'll talk more about that at the end. All right, so like I said, we're going to get into postmodernism. I don't know where that cut. So Let's we'll do it. Find out. All right. Yeah. Yeah. Totally. So I think one of the important things to to kind of have a, a good grasp on, which we again we kind of talked a little bit about last week, right? When you're talking about postmodernism, is is kind of the the roots of it and mm-hmm. and why it kind of came into. And before you get into the history, yeah. How about a definition? So and that, that okay, so that's a difficult part where, okay. when it comes to uh, postmodernism is because depending on who you talk to, the definition can be different. Depending on the particular <laughs> intellectual you're speaking with, it can be different. I feel like there's a joke there being to be made yeah. because of <laughs> well, postmodernism. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, the very nature of postmodernism itself makes it hard to actually hard like, to define down yeah. to one particular definition. Again, like we talked about last week, postmodernism obviously means post, so after modernism. Right. And the modern era was defined by this unwavering trust in the human capability to to reason the problems of the world away through just human reason alone. Okay. Um, and there were some kickbacks to this in in some other intellectual forms, but for the most part, it was it was the idea that uh, that man was the measure of all things. Mm-hmm. Even some Christians also kind of got caught up in this uh, in this as well. Okay. So you have a lot of Christians moving to more of a deistic mindset. Deism is just where they believe in a creator God who made the universe, but then stepped away from it and didn't right. really interact with it at all. Right. So we're kind of the the leader of our own destinies here, kind of within the world. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, exactly. And you try. You also had a lot of uh, quote unquote Christians, and I use that term very loosely. Yeah. You had a lot of them who tried to pull out all of the miraculous and all of the supernatural out of the Bible and started seeing it simply as a book of uh, ethical stories in order to create a, a moral foundation for society. But that, that was it. That's sort of a moral fairy tale yeah, sort exactly. of a thing. Right. Precisely. And this this continued and continued and continued. Um, it started with the European Enlightenment. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then... Yeah, and what's time-wise, what's the timeline here of the modern... Yeah, okay, modernism. so the modern modernism, it depends on, again, upon like your definition, but right. roughly the 17th century okay, going all the way up until the 20th century. Anyway, this this kept going. Man kept trying to believe that they could solve all of the world's issues, but unfortunately, this this didn't really happen. Instead, you had these human ideologies such as Nazism and Marxism and communism mm-hmm. spring up. And when that happened, you you obviously had two of the bloodiest wars the world had ever seen, and and that was the catalyst to shift away from modernism mm-hmm. because people were completely disenfranchised by man's ability to solve the world's issues. Right. And they even started to doubt man's ability to even reason correctly right. because of that. So the pendulum sort of began to swing the other way. Exactly. Okay. Exactly. And this kind of left a, a vacuum for something else, something new. Right. And that's where these French intellectuals, two guys mostly, one whose name is uh, Michel Foucault, Okay. Uh, and another one named Jacques Derrida. And Jacques these Derrida. are French guys mm-hmm. in what, early 1900s? Um, so both of them are kind of uh, a product of, of World War II. Uh, again, I'm going to say bo- they're both 
French, um, but Jacques mm-hmm. Derrida was an Algerian-born Frenchman, um, okay. and at the time, Algeria was controlled by France. Okay, and that actually has a lot to do with with his with his worldview because okay. Algerian Frenchmen were kind of marginalized in society, hmm. and so that was Derrida's reality for a long time. Interesting, this marginalized um, Algerian Frenchman, okay, who kind of started having this negative outlook to society and this gave him a negative view of hierarchies and Mm -hmm. and people of power and one important aspect of both Michel Foucault and Jacques Derrida is that they were they were both really taken in by by the Marxist ideologies and so with Marxist ideologies it was it was all about kind of economic warfare you had the proletariat Mm -hmm. or the working class versus the uh, bourgeoisie the uh, they would I guess describe them as like the capitalist oppressors. Is gotcha. Basically, what you would right, you would have. which which we talked about on I guess it was the last podcast. Yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. Okay. So anyway, that Marxist ideology had had a lot of impact on both Gerard, uh, Derrida and Foucault. Um, but let's let's mostly talk about Jacques Derrida because he was often known as the the actual father of postmodernism. Okay, um, and, and did the, these guys just just teach? Or did they also like write and like publish books, that kind of stuff? Yeah, like, yeah, is that kind of right. how these ideas sort of circulated and spread and that kind of stuff? Yeah. Well, they taught in universities. They're both highly educated intellectuals. Mm-hmm. That Jacques Derrida taught at you know Harvard University. Okay. Um, and then uh, some other universities out in California as well. But one of the biggest things that Jacques Derrida pushed was this idea of of logocentrism. And it's <laughs> okay. Define that. <laughs> oh, right, right. <laughs> Uh, so, okay, logocentrism is the idea that truth was ultimately undergirded in this idea of the divine logos or the divine word. Okay. And that led to his theory of deconstructionism. So basically what Derrida believed is that when he looked at a text, it deconstructed itself. All meaning fell away from the words. Mm-hmm. And then when we read the text, we reinterpret it with whatever meaning that we actually with, want to infuse with, into it. With our cultural input and then with our intellectual sort of inner workings yeah exactly we take it and do what we will with it right okay right. that was what okay yeah that exactly. makes sense and so what he believed is that there was an infinite amount of ways that you can interpret any text because there's an infinite amount of context from which it is actually interpreted yeah that's a fun thought i yeah. mean it's fun to think about it that way yeah i mean In, it's a very almost a desirable way to look at the world because that way you can get any meaning that you want from any particular text. Yeah, yeah. Um, and I guess with something like poetry, I, I could see, uh, okay, yeah. Poetry is more art form. Mm-hmm. It's more sort of what does the reader interpret? Mm-hmm. I, I could see that. But sure. something more not art-based. Sure. Well, the problem is that it wasn't just the actual message of the text itself. It was actually the words also that lost all meaning. So to Derrida... Okay, so what do you mean? Yeah. So Derrida believed that language was not analogous, which means that, okay, so you see this chair that I'm sitting on. Yeah. The word chair actually has no meaning whatsoever. It's just something that we've placed. Not even us, but those who are above us have placed meaning into this chair in order to force the truth of that word onto it in order to subjugate. Okay. <laughs> that's a little weird but okay yeah no it's yeah it's yeah. super weird and super confusing and right. so basically so the what, well sorry sorry yeah, so yeah, no, you're fine. just to kind of take that and run with it so mm-hmm. the idea of like okay if we decided from now on we're gonna call cell phones floopy dupes 
and we're going to teach our kids that they're called floopy doops and advertisements are going to call them floopy doops. That's yeah. kind of that idea. Like right. We we can completely change something because everything doesn't have a meaning. Exactly. Yeah. Okay. Words okay. have no meaning and this is a very important point because Okay. The the reason why it's really important is because how how do we express truth? We well, express with words. we express truth with words. Yeah. And if you can't trust words, how can you actually know what is true? Yeah. And if this principle of deconstructionism is true for something as simple, we'll say simple as as language, mm-hmm. what does that have to say for the rest of reality as well? But language is everything. Because because that and we may be diving a little too deep here, but that is how we communicate. Exactly. Like, whether it's spoken language, whether it's grunts or mm-hmm. clicks or sounds, mm-hmm. or whether it's like American Sign Language, you yeah. know, that the deaf population use. You could even apply that idea to signs or to sounds. So, like, if language breaks down, mm-hmm. I mean, really, if you're gonna apply, if you're gonna apply that idea to to that, then in my mind, it it, it kind of dead ends because you're like, what's the point in anything? Well, yeah, that's that's the issue, and that's yeah. the problem that postmodern intellectuals run into. Okay, um, is because they will say that there is a infinite amount of interpretations to any given phenomena. Mm-hmm. including our sense perception, the thing that we see, the things that we hear, everything, yeah. everything. There's an infinite amount of interpretations. Yeah. Which to, to, an, to an extent, you have to give the devil his due. This is what uh, Jordan Peterson always says about postmodernism. You have to give the devil his due when it comes to that because it's, it's true. There are an infinite amount of interpretations to any given phenomena. Sure. But the issue is, is that there's only a finite number of correct interpretations to any given phenomena. Right. That won't, lead to either chaos or death yeah so for example when you have a headache and you have two choices in your medicine cabinet you have in uh, you either have a uh, tylenol or rat poison i don't really know why you would have rat poison in your medicine cabinet you're just a weird guy i guess you got rats back there you yeah exactly you gotta, you gotta watch out which one are you gonna take you can ask a postmodernist actually it's one of the ways that you can kind of start getting them to think a little bit deeper about their own worldview mm-hmm they're going to take the Tylenol every single time because right. you can't interpret that rat poison to be a pain reliever. It just, right. you can't do it. You can say that you interpret it that way, but mm-hmm. you are going to be wrong and you're going to be deadly wrong. Mm-hmm. And so while Jacques Derrida was right in a sense that there are an infinite amount of interpretations, there's only an infinite amount of true interpretations to any given circumstance. Yeah. So, so, that being said, what we're talking about is postmodernism at its purest form. Yeah. Like if someone if someone says I am a pure postmodernist and identifies as that, then everything that you said is true. Like mm-hmm. nothing everything is fluid, you know, nothing has any meaning. But it, I I can't help but think I, I don't know anyone who thinks like that. You know what I mean? I mean, th- that's just not no one thinks like that. But so, this, I, so, this kernel of an idea, or this, right. uh, like this, this pure idea of of postmodernity, mm-hmm. has bled its way into, I guess, what you would call pop postmodernism, okay, or, or popular postmodernism, right? Which manifests itself in things like 
religious pluralism or relativism, uh, moral relativism. Okay. You're um, going to have to define some of these things. Yeah. Because yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. those terms are going over my sure. head. Okay. So, so when it comes to postmodernity, one of the biggest objections against the Christian faith that we will often hear is that all religions are equally valid and equally true. I see. So, so that relig- the argument is what makes your religion more special than any of the others? What makes right. yours more true? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Exactly. And it's real that and that's a and again that's a really important point because postmoderns cannot say that there is one particular religious truth. And that's because postmoderns are ultimately against what is called a meta narrative or an one particular overarching story to life. Mm-hmm. And that's what a religion is. A religion is an overarching story to life. Right. Um, a purpose exactly but what postmoderns believe in is that there are billions of these micro narratives Mm -hmm. and so that's kind of where you get that um, you know whatever is true for you is true for you whatever's true for me is true for me Mm -hmm. and that again leads itself into this religious pluralism okay where all religions are equally valid because everyone has their own own way okay one way that we can respond to that Mm -hmm. is Often when it comes to postmoderns, we want to take things to their logical conclusions. We mm-hmm. want to bring them to what their ideology ultimately leads to. Yeah. So one of the things that we can ask the religious pluralist okay. is, you believe that all religions are equally valid, right? Or they're equally true. First thing you can bring up is the inherent contradictions that are in different religions. So for instance, some religions believe in heaven. Some don't believe in heaven. Some believe in more of a a nirvana. Mm -hmm. Some religions believe in hell. Other religions believe in reincarnation. And so you can ask them, so what about that? These are complete contradictions. So what do you do with that? And the issue and why this usually doesn't work is that postmoderns are completely fine with contradictions. Uh, Right. Simply because there's an infinite amount of interpretations to everything. Right. So contradiction doesn't matter. That's true for you. you Exactly. Well that something else might be true for somebody else. Right, right. right. And so we want to take that to the extreme. We Mm -hmm. want to say, well, what about those South African tribes that are in existence that still offer child sacrifices as their way to God? Are they correct in doing that? And if so, should we not do anything about it? Or should the local government not do anything about it? Because for them, killing their infants is, is their way to God. Yeah, that was my next question is, is that actually a real thing that happens? Yeah. Okay. Oh, yeah, that's awful. So you want to want to ask them that question. You want to take it to the logical uh, extreme mm-hmm. because in doing so, you're making them recognize the not only the the error in their thinking, but the absolute uh, malevolence in that kind of thinking. Because yeah. they would have to say that yes, that's fine. That's their way to God. If that's what they believe in, if that's what they do, then right. leave them to their own devices because that is how they get to God, and right. that's more important than you you pushing onto them your own beliefs because yeah. that is ultimately wrong. So what's the what's the what's the response to the person who says, "Well, no, that's wrong." Well, then you would want to follow that up by saying, "Well, do you see how that doesn't fit with your worldview of believing that all religions are the same?" And you also if they do agree with you, then you want to ask them, "Well, by whose authority are you deciding which religions are valid and which religions are not valid?" Mm-hmm. And I think by by doing that, it starts getting their gears turning. It right. Sort of this idea of what makes what makes me think. It's kind of talking from their perspective. Mm-hmm. You know, they're asking the question, "What makes me think that them killing a child is wrong?" Mm-hmm. 
Right. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Okay. So that's just one of, of the many objections. So another yeah. one is moral relativism. And uh, so we, 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 we covered religious pluralism mm-hmm. and now moving to moral relativism. Right. Okay. Just trying to keep it straight in my head. Actually, you know what? I, I think, I think a more, I guess I think a more helpful one than just moral relativism because moral relativism can be uh, um, tackled in basically the exact same way as, okay. uh, as that one, because with moral relativism, they basically say that everybody makes up their own morals. Um, I see. So it really gets back to the same point. Yeah, exactly. You want to take that to his logical conclusion and he's want to point out things like, okay, so, I mean, everybody hates Hitler for very good reasons. Mm. And so you want to say, okay, so was Hitler objectively wrong in doing what he was doing to the Jews in World War II? And if they are intellectually consistent with their beliefs, then they would have to say, well, no, because he was making up his own moral value system Mm -hmm. and everyone's truth is equally valid. And Mm -hmm. so Hitler was valid in doing what he was doing. Mm -hmm. Sometimes they will say, they'll kind of like backpedal a little bit and say, well, no, moral relativism is only true as long as you're not hurting others. Right. Right there, you want to stop them and say, okay, you just pointed out an objective moral standard something that is universal to everyone. Therefore, you're going against your initial claim that uh, morality is simply relative. So where does that objective moral standard come from? Because if it's universal for everyone, then it has to come from something higher than... Why is hurting people bad? Exactly. Yeah. So, yeah. Okay, okay. So again, you want to often take things to the extreme. And again, there'll be times where people will admit it and say, well, yeah, I do believe Hitler was morally fine in doing what he was doing because he was living out his truth. And yeah. at that Oof. point, sometimes you kind of have to just like, like say, right, man. agree to disagree yeah. and and, uh, <laughs> yeah. and kind of move on from the conversation because you're not going to get anywhere with somebody who is willing to say that Who's, Hitler was right. fine in doing what he was doing because they, right. are, they are staying consistent at least they're saying consistent and they're saying very stubborn in their belief because they don't really believe that mm-hmm. at least i don't believe that they believe that i think something has to be very wrong with someone to say that uh, yeah yeah uh, that's the case okay so moving on from more rel- moral relativism yeah so um uh, another argument is that there's no way to know what the bible really means because there are an infinite amount of ways to interpret it mm-hmm. taking uh, it back to that more deconstructionist right mindset right right so the goal when we're answering this argument uh is to get them to accept the principle of the analogous use of language basically all that means is that language means something Mm -hmm. when you say a particular word it has a meaning to it and that we can trust for the most part what that meaning is so what you're saying just to kind of clarify in my mind yeah what you're saying is so the meaning of i don't know the word sit For us, sit means to physically sit on the ground, chair, whatever. And in another language, whatever the word for sit is, still means to do that same action. Right. And in every language all over the world, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. there's a consistency in there's a word or or a a gesture for sit. Like it's consistent. Right. Is that kind of what you're saying? Yeah, absolutely. Like words. Words simply have meaning. Right, that right. It's not just this thing for you to interpret however you want. Right. And actually, a, a simple way, and I think it's kind of funny, a simple and easy way to 
illustrate the analogous use of language is by asking them a, a simple and easy question. Okay. So, for instance, you are the postmodern. I okay. say, ask uh, away. Uh, I say, Ethan, what is your favorite color? Purple. How dare you say that about my mother? <laughs> Why would you say that? You can't see um, what I'm getting at? Right. So like, it, it doesn't make any sense. Just ask them whatever question that you want and then interpret it however you desire it. And more than likely, they'll get frustrated because you are not hearing what they're saying. You're interpreting their words or you're twisting their words. Mm-hmm. But in their worldview, that's totally fine because you're interpreting words right. however you want it to, however you want to. Yeah. You're sort of living out an example in front of them to right. them of what their technically technical beliefs would be. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. What's interesting is I, I feel like people don't take things to the extreme. Like, like in their own, in their own minds, people don't take these ideas to the extreme and come to these conclusions themselves. Right. It's just interesting. Yeah. Well, I mean, honestly, a lot of those who want to stick with the postmodern worldview, they do it simply out of, I, man, I hate to use this term, but I can't think of a better way to express it, but kind of an intellectual laziness. Yeah. Um, Sort of. That's the. That's the path of least resistance. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Uh, so you never really have to necessarily defend your beliefs because they can change on a whim. They right. can change whenever you uh, whenever you want them to change. Mm-hmm. Um, you don't ever really have to do work to learn something because if you don't believe that the things that you're reading have true meaning anyway, then you don't have to worry about it. It kind of absolves you from any sort of intellectual responsibility mm-hmm. completely. Right. Because you can't truly know the world for what it is because the world isn't objectively there. It is just however you want to interpret the world. And you're not going to offend anyone. You're not going to, quote, attack anyone by disagreeing with their beliefs. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I mean, this is ultimately a a dangerous worldview. But, I mean, again, it's one worldview that no one actually follows through with. And so we were talking earlier today in our small group, actually, about this apologetic principle called the experiential relevancy. Mm -hmm. So that basically just means that does your worldview hold relevance in how you live your life? So I would say with postmoderns, the postmodern worldview has no real world application to an extent. Right. uh, Because they can't actually live it out. Right. Because if they lived it out, then they would be completely morally relativistic um, or relativistic Mm -hmm. where if they wanted to steal, there'd be no reason to not. Mm-hmm. Um, if they wanted to kill someone, there'd be no real reason to to not kill somebody. Not only mm-hmm. that, but how they interpret reality could be completely up to them as well. Right. Why would why stop at a stop sign if that truck isn't objectively or isn't really objectively there and going to actually hit you? If that truth is not really true, mm. then why stop at a stop sign? Yeah. So they can't actually live out their worldview because it has no experiential relevancy. Right. That that you talk the talk, but do you actually fully walk the walk? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. Right. Right. So those are kind of some of the pop arguments to with postmodernism. Okay. But kind of going back to the more intellectual side of postmodernism that you see mm-hmm. in a lot of college universities. Okay. And going back to this idea of logocentrism, it has a lot, I guess, darker of a motive than simply just living out life the way that you want it to. Mm-hmm. Because when Jacques Derrida put forward the idea of logocentrism, he was saying that 
the West desperately wanted to hold on to this idea that truth was undergirded by the divine Logos, that truth was rooted in something. And he used the word Logos for a very specific reason, because Jacques Derrida was a brilliant guy. And he used the word Logos because he knew that in the first verse of John, Jesus is described as the word. And mm. the Greek translation of that is Logos. Huh. And so Jesus is the divine Logos. The Logos became flesh. The Logos can be translated into reason, logic, or word. Mm-hmm. And so Jacques Derrida recognized that if he wanted to do away with man's understanding of what is actually true, then he had to disintegrate the Western Christian ethic that is rooted in Jesus Christ. Disconnect it from Christ. Exactly. Completely disconnect it from Christ because Mm -hmm. if you do that, then truth has no real meaning Mm -hmm. because there's nothing that it is uh, anchored in. And that's an important point for Christians. Right. Because we believe that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. Right. And that he is the divine Logos. He mm-hmm. is the word that became flesh. So I have a th- I had a thought while you were kind of explaining that. Yeah. When he sort of came up with this idea and uh, logocentrism, what is it? Logocentrism. Logocentrism, meaning, okay, all truth is kind of based on this the word and this religious sort of foundational undertone huh was huh that's really interesting i'm sorry i'm just kind of processing yeah, this no, no. as we go well you see, so, oh, so well so was he was he purposefully sort of sticking it to the church uh yeah i mean he he really was and i mean not necessarily like the the church as we see it but uh-huh. but religious ideology in okay. general specifically christian ideology because that is the Judeo-Christian ethic is is what made the Western world what it what it was. Oh, yeah, yeah. Um, you can't have you can't have Western progression without Judeo-Christian uh, with a, without a Judeo-Christian uh, foundation. You just can't have it. Mm-hmm. Mostly because of the idea of the sovereign individual, which comes from Genesis one of man being created in the image of God, mm-hmm. and each specific person having value, intrinsic value, because of that. Mm-hmm. So you're saying sort of Western civilization really progressed the way that it did because of this religious foundation that there was mm-hmm. sort of speaking into their morals. Yeah. Even if they weren't, because, I mean... Even if they weren't necessarily Christian. Christian, right. But they there still were these, base all of their morality. They these base Christian ideas. Of, yeah, even legal ideas as well. Yeah. And, okay, all right. Yeah. This is, okay, this is... But, I'm following. I'm yeah, following. and so... And that's where, you know, with with Jacques Derrida kind of going against, and there's a specific reason why Jacques Derrida would want to go against this this foundation to Western civilization. And that is because he found it ultimately oppressive. Okay. And that's why he was so caught up with Marxism. That's why he liked Marxism. Right. Because it comes back to this class warfare. Um, But again, Marxism was... You, you could not be a Marxist in, right. in the 70s. You just couldn't be. And that's when mm-hmm. Jacques Derrida started becoming more prominent. Yeah. And so there was kind of a sleight of hand. And so what you often see in postmodernism, and you can see this in the uh, political left right now, is this oppressed versus oppressor uh, type of mindset. And this is kind of what we were talking about tribalism mm-hmm. last week, where it right. was always this us versus them. Right. All of society is broken up into groups. Mm-hmm. 
And those groups are on this hierarchy of power. And Jacques Derrida believed that there's this higher echelon, this higher um, tier of power that was always pressing down on those on the very bottom. Mm -hmm. And so that's what he saw Western civilization as. That's what he saw as the result of of the Judeo-Christian ethic. And Mm -hmm. he wanted to destroy that and completely wipe out Western, basically, uh, the Western culture and Western civilization, and mm-hmm. simply reduce it to these tribes who are constantly vying for power. Yeah, and he did this through because that's the only way. That's the only way everyone are, is quote equal. equal. Everyone's on this level same, playing same level, field. Same playing field. Okay. Exactly. Okay, I see. And and that's where you know that's why he went so hard with this idea of logocentrism. That's why deconstructionism huh. was so important because yeah. if you could deconstruct your idea of truth, then you can. You can completely wipe out yeah. any sort of uh, undergirding religious truth that is based in Jesus Christ. Does that okay. make any sense? Yeah, yeah, I'm following. And this is, again, in the 70s? That's when this started to, um, I guess, get more popular. I mean, that's huh. when okay. uh, the majority when it really of the, started to pick up. Yeah, that's when the majority of the French intellectuals started coming over and started teaching this within the universities and things mm-hmm. like that. And, um, again, not everyone necessarily knows all of that when it comes to postmodernism it's more yeah. of this like this pop understanding of of what postmodernism is of yeah. this of going back to the moral relativism the religious relativism right. and yeah just relativism in general yeah. is really kind of what most people think about yeah. when it comes well, to it, postmodernism it's interesting like i i have a thought i wonder if people come to these ideas of moral relativism religious pluralism more on their own, you know, because again, it's sort of this path of least resistance, or if it's something that has been sort of ingrained in them, right? Yeah, via society. You oh know? yeah, I think it's um, I think it's both and. Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, it's it is absolutely pushed on society. I mean, if you right. look at uh, just watch watch any sort of Hollywood you know big name talk about religion, mm-hmm. um, it's even those who claim to be christians a lot of times it's it's often in this uh you know this is what i believe but you know what we're all living our truths and that's what's most important right it's it's really pushed it's pushed everywhere Mm. especially in college campuses right now right a lot of uh in a lot of areas especially within the humanities yeah college campuses yeah but i also go into a science what's that (laughs) i said so go into a science that's right (laughs) but and i i do also think that it's something that people at times because of their fallen sinful nature mm. want to be true. They want all right. roads to lead to heaven because it's easier. It's way easier. You're right. Oh, right. Um, right. And, and I think even Christians fall into this as well. I mean, there are times where I find there are things in the Bible that would be just easier if we could just pick around and say, Oh, well, we don't, you know, we don't really believe in that. Skip over that verse. Bible. Right. Yeah, we can, you know, that's, that's, that's not for us, but we, we, we can take these main tenets out and, you know, have our own worldview. That's, that's pseudo Christian, but mm-hmm. we can just leave the things that we don't like in there. Right. Um, instead of doing the intellectual legwork and figuring out, you know, well, why is this in here? Is right. it in, this in here for a particular reason? We could, we could do the lazy, easy thing on this side yeah. of that. Exactly, exactly. And that's where you get a lot of this more liberal Christianity stuff where, you know, you, they want to take out all the things that are hard truths yeah. of our faith. Yeah, and so. and I can't help but think about when, I, I think it's Paul who says, you know, moving on from that spiritual milk to meat, Yeah, in my mind at least, is, is uh, 
that more intellectual thought and, and being able to deal, sort of figure out those mm-hmm. spiritual truths there. I, right. I, I laugh because as I was describing that and I said to me, I couldn't help but go back to like, am I just interpreting this for my own? Like, am I doing? <laughs> right, yeah. But yeah, like, the important thing is that, okay, you can have an interpretation of what I'm saying. Right. And you can be either right or you can be wrong. <laughs> right, right. Yeah. So, uh, uh, but yeah, it's a, it's a tricky thing. And it's a thing that we have to, I think we have to guard our hearts over. Yeah, for sure. Make sure that we're not wanting to reject certain Christian doctrine mm-hmm. simply because it's it's hard to hard to figure out. And in doing so, we basically become doctrinal relativists. Yeah. If that makes any sense. Oh, uh, yeah, totally. Yeah. Totally. I guess one last thing. It's it's interesting too. Going back to um, so so postmodernism, or at least the intellectual version of postmodernism, it's it's basically a neo-Marxist ideology, mm-hmm. which is really interesting because postmodernists they hate that meta narrative. Mm-hmm. Uh, remember we were talking about meta narrative, right? They don't believe in this overarching story to life. Uh, Marxism is a meta narrative. It, it's this overarching story to life in the way that they believe the world works in the way they believe. The world is, you mm-hmm. know, oppressed versus oppressor, right? Uh, and this tribalistic mentality. But again, that goes back to postmoderns who don't care about contradictions. Yeah, and they can be both and in right. the worst sense possible. Yeah. When and to you mentioned that, and uh, I'm awful with names. What was the French fella's name? Jacques Derrida. Derrida. Yeah. Um, so you mentioned earlier there was this kind of sleight of hand of when he's sort of introducing this new idea it's really the same old idea oh yeah it's just repackaged it went from economic warfare to power um yeah uh, uh, power warfare or tribal warfare is the best way to put it yeah right yeah well sorry i i I, the the question that i want to ask is that being said do you think he did that on purpose and I, i realize this is really reading into this and but do you think that he sort of purposefully did that sort of as an agenda to, to push his agenda, like purposefully sort of um, shrouding this idea with this new, or do you think mm-hmm. in his mind it was a new idea, but because of his ideology uh, and his past and his, his, these ideas that are already in him that he came, he comes up with this quote new idea, but it, maybe I'm, I'm just wondering maybe what the intention was. It depends on who you ask, I think. I mean, yeah. you have some some skeptics, or not skeptics, but some uh, people who are way smarter than I am who will say that both Jacques Derrida and Michel Foucault and another guy's name is Rorty, that they were specifically setting out to destroy Western civilization. Okay, and a more intentional. Other, yeah, and you have other people who are more charitable uh, in their uh, in their interpretations of them. The, the difficult thing with Jacques Derrida is that he is notoriously hard to understand in his writing mm. because he, um, <laughs> which is again, kind of funny. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's funny that any of these guys would write anything because of their theory of deconstructionism, because yeah. if, if they believe that words aren't analogous, then how would they expect anybody to actually understand their book? Mm-hmm. So it kind of, they kind of defeated their own argument by simply writing writing down on a page (laughs) so (laughs) anyway but Derrida was was notoriously hard to understand because he would always change his terminologies for different things if you go back to to his uh, his writings and and his original thoughts and all these things and not even his just original thoughts but all of his writings on this you can kind of see that yeah that was his that was his intent yeah Uh, his intent was to was to 
bring up these tribes that that were not based on any sort of intellectual diversity because mm-hmm. intellectual diversity in the postmodern world doesn't matter because all worldviews are quote unquote the same. Mm-hmm. So what does matter at that point, if you take out the intellectual side of things, the only thing that matters is what you see on the surface. And if you could create these tribes and you can have them constantly fighting over power, it just completely takes out the the foundations of western civilization yeah and like you said it creates this this even playing field mostly where the people on top are destroyed and the people who he viewed as oppressed were elevated mm-hmm. and it's just this obsession with power of wanting yeah. power and huh. gaining more power right and that's where you have the issue with identity politics um, because you have this idea of intersectional uh, identity okay of where um, your identity is based off of where your different identities based on how you've been victimized in your life intersect. Okay. So for instance, us as, um, and this is going to get into like hot, hot water territory kind of thing. So, <laughs> okay, go for so it. So we'll see how it goes. Yeah. Um, but us as white males, we are top echelon of the oppressors mm-hmm. um, because we're white males. We're not any sort of victim. In, in this particular uh, worldview. Mm-hmm. Um, I have diabetes, so I'm, I'm some <laughs> yeah, kind of victim. You but if you're a, a white female, yeah. then you have... You're oppressed. You know, you've gained a level because you're more oppressed than a white male. Right. But if you are a black female, then you get even higher on this tier of victim, right. uh, victimization. And then mm-hmm. if you are a transsexual uh, black Islamic person... Mm-hmm. then you are at the very tippy top. And, right. And therefore, your opinion and your beliefs matter more. And we as white males just need to shut up and let them do what they need to do. Yeah. Um, and so that's how the postmodern mindset works itself out in the public sphere. And you see this coming from the left. I mean, you see this. Uh, I mean, you see identitarian politics on the right as well with uh, like white nationalism and things like and, and right. horrible atrocities. Right. And you see it on the, on the like far that. other end of the spectrum. Exactly. Right. Exactly. Um, but a lot of this, this postmodern worldview works itself out at the moment on the far left. Mm. And that's what it looks like with the identitarian politics, with the intersectionality and all those different kinds of things. Mm-hmm. So very interesting. Yeah. Yeah. That's. That's a lot, man. It's a That's lot a to lot. unpack yeah. and a lot to think about. Well, it's been it's been really good. And I did have a, another question that I thought of. Yeah. Um, how do you know all of this? <laughs> oh, <laughs> uh, but because you really you're you're very well versed, and I mean, knowing these where this comes from, and sort of some of these guys' writings and the ideas. And I'm I'm just curious. Yeah, yeah. yeah um, I mean, how'd... I guess I I read a lot. Uh, yeah, honestly, that's the best thing you can do is is read and read and read. When it comes to the, so, okay, so one of the things that I think that Christian philosophers and theologians don't do a good enough job sometimes when it comes to postmodernism mm-hmm. is it's Marxist roots. Okay. And the best person that I found to kind of help explain where it really came from mm-hmm. is Jordan Peterson. Okay. Because uh, he's done uh, an extensive amount of, of studying and research and Okay. Uh, and stuff on And he's it. not a believer, is he? He's not. No, he's not okay. a believer. Okay. Um, which we can talk about later. But yeah. well, um, which I think we've mentioned him. Maybe, we we have. Yeah. Like before. in like our first podcast, and right. things like that. We've we've mentioned him. But 
he's really good at understanding the the foundational level of post modernity when it comes mm-hmm. to this stuff. Um, another good book is actually by a guy named uh, Veith V E I T H I think is how you spell it. Okay, but he has this book called uh, Postmodern Times. I think it's it's pretty accessible. It's not too wordy or anything like that. Yeah, yeah. There's a series called the Great Thinkers series. Okay. Um, and it's written from a from Christians and Veith Veith is also a Christian. So the Postmodern okay. Times book is is Christian as well. Okay. But there's this Great Thinker series that goes through all of kind of history's major players in philosophy. Uh, oh. And it interesting. And I, one of the ones that that they do it on is is Jacques Derrida. Okay. And but it is a it's a it's a high level read. Yeah. And it's really you have to. It's one of those ones where you have to read a paragraph fourteen times yeah. before you start to kind of sort of maybe understand it a little right, bit. Right. Right. But um, and a it, lot of the terminology. I mean, again, you know, uh, when you first mentioned some of the terminology, I mean, it's straight over my head. Yeah. Then you right. explain it, and I'm like, oh, okay, that's not complicated. It's right. just I just didn't understand the sure. Terminology. Sure. Like, yeah. Well, and uh, okay, so here's the thing: you can also define post-modernity and you'll have seven people completely agree with what you how you defined it mm-hmm. you can have seven people who completely disagree with how you define postmodernism, yeah. and so yeah. it just you kind of have to do the best you can and uh yeah. and, and kind of find the middle ground middle ground there because it can mean different things for different people right from that worldview so <laughs> it's crazy so it's crazy post- man. Yeah. it's hard to it's hard to wrap like my i have a headache already just Talking yeah. about it for it's for like this long. it's like Russian nesting dolls. Like yeah. you open one, and then there's another one, and you yeah. open one, there's another one. Yeah, and then you go and you and you finally explain it, and then you're like, and then and and then you hear yourself say, "In my opinion," and you're like, "Oh, and there it is." <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Exactly. It's just really funny, but right. I, I, this has been really good. Yeah. Hopefully to you guys too, because I know it has been to me. Yeah, and I know that that is that's a lot to take in, and I I didn't do the best job at explaining it sometimes, but I hope that you kind of got an overall view of, of what it is. Um, if you do have any questions, or if you want to learn a little bit more, you can actually go to truthfordoubt.com, and um, I have a postmodern postmodern class on there mm-hmm. that you can take. That it goes a little bit into more detail about how you can respond to postmoderns um, apologetically and how to right. how to bridge that to the gospel. Yeah. So if you want to learn more about that and how to really have these gospel conversations with postmoderns, mm-hmm. go to truthfordoubt.com, go on to the online classes, and, uh, and it'll be there. Yeah, so. and I like that this is sort of, you know, even if you take the class— this is like a little bit of like a little bit of extra, a yeah, little bit right. like lanyap. You know, it's a little bit extra on the top, a little bit more background exactly. information and history, and I, I just find it really interesting. Well, cool, man. I'm glad. I'm glad you did. Well, dude, we are way over time at oh. the moment. We're like at the what hour seventeen? Oh my god! But that's before the edit, so maybe we'll cut <laughs> it down to size. Seventeen a minutes, bit. yeah. Um, uh, so we have a new Patreon page. You can tell yeah, yeah. the so, actual how to spell it and everything. Yeah, sure. so go to patreon.com slash T4D uh, if you would like to become a supporter of the Truth for Doubt ministry. Number four. Yeah, the Just number four. Just want to clarify T, that. the number four, D. Yeah. Um, the, uh, it'll be in the, the description of this podcast as well. But uh, we really want you guys to to join with us on this mission to to share the gospel with unbelievers because that's a, a big part of what Truth for Doubt does. We want to 
make more classes. We want to make more podcasts. We want to uh, do apologetic videos and do them at a, at a high quality. And, uh, and we want you to be a part of that. So if you are looking for something to support, then go to patreon.com slash T4D. There's different tiers that you can choose from as well, starting for as low as $5 a month. Um, and that gives you different benefits. So you can um, send us questions that we will answer on a brand new segment of the Truth For Doubt podcast, the Q&A segment. Which I'm very excited about. Yeah, I think too. that's going to be really good. Yeah. Lots of good discussion. Yeah. So, so sign up and send us any questions that you want us to answer. Pick whatever tier is good for you, however much... Uh, God is leading you towards, I guess, is the best way to put that. So. Cool, cool. Well, uh, stay tuned. Our next episode, we'll start with our top three Jungian psychologist. Uh, well, it'd probably just be one. <laughs> <laughs> Carl Jung. Yeah, I know, I figured. Uh, you mentioned him earlier, and I was like, that would be a pretty funny joke. But it, it, it kind of flopped. <laughs> I know, it's good. I'm so tired. Mm, that me Mexican too. food is really starting to... I'm starting to kick in, man. It's rumbling in my tumbling. I think it's time. I think it's nap time. Mm. All right. Until next time. Thank you guys so much. Mm.